S&P, the ASX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that doesn't believe in thoughtless siloed ideology. We'll get to why in a second. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me as always is Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. How are you? G'day, Captain. I'm very good. I'm, I'm pretty happy with today because we've got a special guest in the studio, but I won't reveal who just yet. Uh, mate, we've had some great feedback on our recent podcast. You were off for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And so basically because I knew listeners didn't want to hear me just bang on for, you know, 45 minutes straight, we actually had a couple of guests. So if you haven't, listeners, if you haven't had a chance yet, go back and have a listen. We've had Warren Hogan, who is now UTS professor, and he was the former, or is the former, chief economist of ANZ. And before that, or after that, sorry, we had Eliza Owen from CoreLogic, their head of Australian research. So had some really good feedback on that. We thought we'd keep going, and we thought we'd have another uh, another expert in her particular field, a lady. There's a, there's a bit of a hint. Wonder who it might be. Now, our heritage doc and our our focus generally is shares. That's kind of our thing, right? But as our listeners know by now, we do have a broader interest in general personal finance. Our Money Hacks little mini podcast has been very successful and very popular. And I've got to say, I personally think that we kind of unnecessarily silo ourselves as investors sometimes. You know, there's the shares guys, there's the property guys, there's the foreign exchange guys, there's, God help them, the Bitcoin guys. Um I'm not exactly sure that's particularly helpful, A, because you might be missing opportunities, but B, because sometimes thinking about a different asset class can actually be really, really useful. So I'm pretty pleased. Well, we're not going to do kind of the spruikers. We're not going to do the, the usual kind of, you know, bias suspects. But in this case, we've got a, a fellow traveler and a lady named Veronica Morgan. G'day, Veronica. Well, hello. How are you? Good. <laughs> now, well, is it, so it is a good intro. I want to I want to tell our listeners a little bit more about you before we get into asking you some questions. So, you're a property buyers agent. We'll ask a bit about that in a minute. You're a TV show host. You're a fellow podcaster, and as of this month, in fact, as of next week, a published author. Ooh, yes. Now, you and I came across. We crossed paths at Sky News All those back in the day. When, exactly. <laughs> Where you go. And then I started listening to the podcast you do with Chris Bates called "The Elephant in the Room." And for our listeners who are looking for another podcast. If you want to add some property to your shares, The Elephant in the Room is a very good podcast and well and truly worth your listen. I make it a regular weekly listen. Uh, Veronica and Chris were also kind enough to ask me to appear on that podcast. So this is something of a return favour. But more <laughs> importantly, um, we wanted Veronica on because she has a lot of great things to say. So what struck me when we chatted, mate, was we had a very similar approach to investing in general, albeit that our asset focus is very, very different. Um, you guys, the elephant in the room, the idea behind that, and I'll let you talk a bit about it, but the idea of the kind of psychological biases that hold us back from success in investing, which is what we, well, frankly, bang on about relatively regularly, as listeners would know. Um, so that's why I kind of wanted to have a chat because there's a lot of kind of shared benefit and value. Also, frankly, you're going to have some new and different things to talk to us about, and we don't do property that often, so that, that's that's pretty useful. So that's why we've asked you to come along. But I'm going to have to get the big news out of the way because, frankly, that's what you want to talk about and, uh, and what we want you to talk oh. about is the, the brand new book. Now, we're a PG program. Uh, if, you've got, if you've got little kids <laughs> listening, feel free to, uh, to, to close their ears just for half a second. Nothing terrible. Your book is now going to be called Auction Ready. And the subtitle is How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. Now, you, you, you bring out the hashtag, but we can't do hashtags on air, so we'll, we'll say the full word and ask for, ask for people's forgiveness. Now, you want people to buy the book. We won't ask you to give too much away, but just give us a bit of, a, a bit of an outline of what the book is going to be like, what you've written about, and why you're hoping people might buy it. I love auction. I'm just so interested in it, you know. I mean, I it find makes the it, block come alive. <laughs> yeah, I find them fascinating. Mind you, probably that's my least favourite auctions to watch, <laughs> just quietly. But I, I find the whole human drama 
behind mm-hmm. auction just fascinating. Okay. And I guess because I understand what's going on, I get the yeah. language and I know what agents are trying to achieve and I know what they say and what how much is BS versus how much is, you know. <laughs> what, what's, what's, what are the, what's the proportion just quickly between the BS and the, and the real stuff? Well, you know the real problem, it, 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 they're not all the same. Some agents are really, really good at being very open and honest and transparent with you and others are full of <laughs> BS. So, you know, you've got the 100 percenters versus to the maybe oh, 5 okay, percenters. Okay, right, right. So it's not, it's not, not, not even split, it's either one way or the other, right? Well, there's a continuum. Okay. There's a definitely like continuum. All right. All right. Uh, and that's that's sort of in the book as well, you know, talking about the different types <laughs> of agents, you know, and how to interpret price guides. But, yeah, yeah. but so buyers often fear auction mm-hmm. and there are benefits to buyers at bidding at auction and there's also benefits in not bidding at auction in making offers private, mm-hmm. understanding really what's going on so that you can make really clear decisions around that okay. is really, really important if you want to succeed at this game. Interesting. Let me ask you then. Do, are auctions better for buyers or for sellers? Well, they can be both. Okay. Right? And it very much depends on conditions and what's been going on. So obviously in a seller's market, mm. yeah, you know, every Manny's dog <laughs> right. wants to go to auction. Of course you go to auction, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, if the agent has overquoted the property, where sometimes they do, mm. and we've got all these different archetypes sure of agents not. that we work with in our office, you know, <laughs> and you have a defender, for instance, who might have okay. quoted high to get the business and they actually mm-hmm. t- truly believe it yeah. and the vendor believes it too and the pair of them are, you know, arm in arm and they're all agreeing on what the price <laughs> is at and sometimes they overquote. Yeah. Not common because yep. everyone's whinging about underquoting, right. but sometimes it happens. So, therefore, in a situation like that, it's a mm. good idea for a buyer to go to auction because okay, like a lot it. of other buyers might have been scared off. I like it. All right, mate. Well, let's, 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 uh, before we keep going with that line of question, tell me all the way back. Tell me the Veronica Morgan story. <laughs> You're a property buyer's agent. So, I want to know a bit about what that is. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, um, you're also now an author. You're also in the in a past life were a real estate agent. So you've seen it from both sides of the of the coin. Tell us a little bit about your career thus far. Where have you been? Where are you now? Where are you going? What's the what's the Veronica story? So I've been in property now for twenty years, and I started uh, in real estate selling, and I sold for six years, and I did very very well at it. Well done. And you know, to be quite frank, I got into it because I had a failed business and I needed to pay some debts. Okay. And I I was always interested in property, but when I got into it, it was like, oh, I get this. I get what's mm. going on. I get the human element. I get the property element and I like it all. But after six years, I really was a bit bored. I mean, selling property for me was a bit like Groundhog Day. Okay. So every day I got up, right. I was like, oh, I'm going to do it all again. And I'd lost <laughs> my, I really okay. had lost my mojo. And it, okay. see, it really coincided with when I had my daughter. So that was a bit lucky. I took a year mm-hmm. off. Okay. And I really did consider doing other things. Um, but I really kept coming back to this idea of representing the buyer mm-hmm. um, because I could see that it could be done better and I could see that buyers are really under represented. Yeah, it's yeah. a really, un, it's an uneven playing field, let's face it. Right, right. And it doesn't matter how smart you are as a buyer and, and I guess we get to the elephant in the room. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the subconscious mind and, and what, you know, our biases and what drives us, yep. um, they disadvantage us in many cases. And then right. you've got an uneven playing field in the sense that the agent actually holds much more information than the buyer does. Mm-hmm. So all that sort of led me to think, you know what, I've got great insights into this. I understand what's going on. Let's actually take it onto the other side, use my powers for good, not evil. <laughs> <laughs> or at least that's what you'd say. Would a real estate agent say the same thing about a buyer's agent, do you think? Well, you know, and look, and I don't want to bag real estate agents no, either, to I be know. quite... I know I am a real estate agent. So, you know, <laughs> for me to bag real estate agents would be pretty bloody stupid. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but the thing is that that um, a smart real estate agent gets that when they're dealing with a buyer's agent, a good mm-hmm. buyer's agent, because we're not all good. I mean, so unfortunately, in our business, we've got a very low barrier to entry, so that's but, another issue. So not, not too dissimilar in financial services just quietly. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, although you now have to have a degree. Well, yes. If, if, you, if you're already in the industry and you've been there for 40 years, you can get away yeah, with it a little bit longer. Yeah, you grandfathered a little yeah, bit the same with yeah. what's happening in property. But Funny that. So, so, yes, there's low barrier to entry, unfortunately. But when you're dealing with a really smart sales agent – not even a really smart one. I mean, just one that likes getting deals done. Yeah, right. You know, they, they'll look at us and think, okay, well, you've got a qualified buyer. Your buyer's ready to buy. Okay, you're yeah, advising them, et cetera, right, et cetera. Right, right. Some of them sort of try to lean on us and they mistake the what our role is. They think mm. that we're just basically one of them okay. and we're not. You know, our role is to help our clients buy without regrets. So it's nudge, nudge, wink, wink, let's get a deal done here because yeah. you get some money, we get some money, yeah. everyone's happy. And, you know, sometimes we use that if that's going to work for us. <laughs> but, but they miss the point. But, yeah, yeah. but the majority of agents do see buyers' agents as, as, as conduit to helping them. Mm-hmm. The flip side is the now in some degree of kind of recession or, or receding a little bit, the whole kind of agent-free, purple bricksy kind of mm. approach where, hey, it's a reasonably easy market. You don't need a real estate agent. You don't need a buyer's agent. Let's just do the deal. Both save a bit of cash. Yeah. Obviously, you're going to tell me that that's not the the, the best way to go about getting a deal done for either side. <laughs> what's your What's your thought though on that? I mean, at some point, you could argue a real estate agent and a buyer's agent cancel each other out because you're both getting paid fees and you're both trying to get the best. So if you're doing a great job, the agent's doing a great job, then you kind of get back to some sort of rational pricing. Is it not better just to go straight for the online purple bricks option and be done with it? Well, if that's the only thing you're trying to achieve about price, yeah, sure. Mm. You know, if it's just purely transactional. But certainly in our business, what we want to uncover is actually what is the right property for you? Mm -hmm. Are you looking in the right area? Have you actually gone and got financed the right amount of money? You know, there's there's so much more involved. Are you looking into the future? Have you Mm -hmm. considered Mm -hmm. whether this asset is better than that asset? You know, um, as an owner-occupier, are you thinking like an investor? Because this is a Massive, massive commitment. You know, you got all these eggs in this one basket. Um, if you're an investor, you're thinking like an owner-occupier because at the end of the day, they, they're the people that push prices up. So there's this mm. sort of thinking uh, and insights and, and uh, I guess showing what's going on underneath the surface that is what a really, really accomplished buyer's agent will do. Right, right. Now, from a sales agent perspective, and, and look, you know, there's these disruptors and it's interesting, the purple bricks thing. I mean, I love that they call themselves a disruptor. I mean, they just basically were a cheap alternative and they <laughs> completely misunderstood how we buy, how we sell property in this country okay. because they came in with an English model and mm-hmm. in the UK, agents, like owners often show their own properties in the UK. Right, right, okay. You know, it, it, owners don't show their own oh, properties okay, in Australia. Okay. Um, so in some degree, purple bricks was bringing the current business just a bit more online, whereas here they had to kind of break apart the entire business model, is that? Well, yeah, it's like right. they didn't actually research the Australian market. Yeah. It was bizarre. It's like, oh, it's worked so well in the UK, we'll just bring it to Australia. <laughs> oh, they all speak English. Yeah, yeah right. Must right, be the same, right? right? Yeah. Um, Not which so much. astounds me with the mm, amount of money mm, they mm. invest in, in it. But um, and our, our, you know, so, so I don't see that mm. really as a disruptor. But what is interesting is that I think a uh, market is or an industry is ripe for disruption if people are, don't trust them. Yeah. You know, exactly. if they want an alternative. Yep, yep, so yep. the sales agent thing is different to the buyer's agent thing because the buyer's agent thing is, is there's only still a very small percentage of people that actually use a buyer's agent right, right. because there's an additional fee yep. and and so therefore they've got to have a different mindset themselves around what why they need help. Mm. So we're not sort of right for disruption yet. <laughs> But, yeah. <laughs> you know, in a way we're sort of disrupting, but but it's yeah. it's more the disrupting. You are the disruption for now, right? Well, we're sort of more the disrupting the buyer's mentality about how mm, they actually mm, go mm. about it. Right, right, right. 
what you mentioned owners and, and investors. How would you? What's your? I'm not asking a question. That's giving away personal secrets. What proportion of your business is is investors and what is owner occupiers? How do you kind of see that part of the market yeah. operating? So at at the market peak, mm. uh, our proportion was 60% owner occupiers, 40% investors. Yep. That sort of dropped immediately to 70 30, and then it oh, went wow. down to 10 90. Okay. And, and so we're, we're going back up again. I haven't actually checked my most recent numbers, but <laughs> yeah. we're, our 60-40 split for us works really well. Okay. I like that. Makes sense. And a lot of that is because we only, in my business, and I've got another sort of business where I'm starting, but that's premature to talk about it. But okay. in my core business, which is Good Deeds Property Buyers, in Sydney, we buy within a 10K radius for the CBD. And okay. so, you know, there's a lot of investors that come to us that simply don't have enough money to buy a quality investment. Right, right, right. Um, if they can afford in Melbourne, I will... On refer them to people I okay. know down there, okay. but there's there's you know we can talk about what makes a quality investment in property. I was I was <laughs> going to get onto that actually, mm. so that was exactly my next question. I was going to ask you about what parts of the country you work in. You've answered that ten yep. days of the Sydney CBD. Um, I guess I'll ask you why that. I mean, if someone's got money to spend and they want to buy fifteen k's out, why would you say no? I'm not going to help you, or I can't help you, or whatever. Um, so maybe that first, and then maybe go to then. Maybe the answer is the same. What makes a great property investment? I know that's a very generic question, yeah. but let's start there. So so why 10Ks of the CBD? And then, mm. and then I assume that's because it makes a great investment or maybe it doesn't. But just give us an answer to that, to that kind of question if you could. So fundamentally it's because within that 10K radius, and look, there might be a little bit of flex in different edges of it, but mm-hmm. the reality is A-grade property needs to be within 10K because – there's scarcity in okay. terms of location, in terms of actually supply, right? Okay. So, yeah, yeah. and then we get into the layers of well, what do you buy? Do you buy houses? Do you buy apartments? Do you buy new apartments? No, you don't. Um, do you buy, you know? Um, <laughs> I'm going to ask you about that because yeah. I know you're hot on that one. <laughs> so, so that's sort of a very general thing. And the fundamental reason for that is that it's the whole ripple effect, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that people will go beyond those borders when the market is hot because of affordability and then they contract within those borders again okay. when the market becomes more affordable. And okay. so there's okay. always underlying demand for quality property in those areas. So let me challenge that only because I don't understand, so you'll, mm. you'll set me straight. If a market is relatively efficiently priced, generally speaking, isn't that premium already priced into those properties? If, if they are already high-quality properties and they're going to be already selling for more – on one, on one version of the future, you'd say, well, if, if everything's priced kind of roughly appropriately most of the time, then <laughs> the opportunity for someone who's buying cheaper 15, 20Ks out or someone who's buying more expensively 10Ks in, mm. um, in theory, the future looks the same for both. If they're priced right now, then the future gains should be, in theory, somewhat similar, shouldn't they? But they're not. Tell me why. The future gains, yeah. Well, because the reality is, and I've done loads of case studies on this, you mm. can actually look in, say, within one suburb. You've got a median... Uh, growth rate, right? Yes. Every suburb's got its median, which basically means you've got 50% going to perform above that median, 50% below. Yep. So not everything. A rising tide does not lift all ships, people. You know, <laughs> the, the, and this is said a lot. A rising yep. tide yep. lifts all ships. So therefore the market's going up, everything's going up. Isn't that wonderful? Actually, no. Okay. You can have people lose money in a rising market. You can have people make more money than others in a falling market. Veronica, you're not allowed to say that. You're supposed to be working in property. <laughs> property goes up. It doesn't go down. Everything's okay. Oh, Come and on. everything goes up 7% per annum, doesn't it? Yes. Doubles in 10 years. You know, 7.2%, I should say. Exactly. But, you know, yeah. And this yeah. is the thing that, and this is why I love that you said you're not going to get spruikers on because they will come on and feed people this mm-hmm. diet of bullshit. And sorry, am I allowed to say it again? I, I, already, uh, <laughs> I already have, so you can, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and people lap it up. They yeah, love being told yeah, that crap. Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's one of the biases, right? We like confirmation bias. Mm. If you think property's going to go up, if you kind of feel comfortable with property because it's physically and you can touch all that kind of good stuff, is there a ceiling though? I mean, at some point, if if inner city property goes up twice as fast as the rest of it, at some point, doesn't it price itself out of the market? Isn't there a point at which you're going to say, 
I can't do inside 10Ks anymore because it's just already, all, all, all the games are already priced in or is there... Are there literally decades of kind of outperformance ahead for that inner city market? It's sort of interesting, isn't it? Because you always think, and I've been now in real estate for 20 years, and you keep thinking, oh, it couldn't possibly be that a two-bedroom semi would sell for more than 300000 you know? <laughs> who's, who's paying oh that money? Oh, my right? God. Exactly. And yeah, now that yeah. same two-bedroom two semi might be working, you know, might be selling for one and a half, you know? It, it's... Should have bought it back then. You didn't tell me. Yeah, the old, yeah. <laughs> Why didn't I? Oh, I could Regret's have bought back then in the 1970s. Um, but they, there's all these... Um, <laughs> But I think that, the, yes, there are points at which you go, oh, that's too much, yeah. you know, and so obviously that's when you get these corrections. Yeah, yeah. But there's other factors that go into affordability. You know, mm-hmm. you've got interest rates, you've got, um, uh, you know, incomes, you've mm-hmm. got a whole mm-hmm. bunch of, you know, other stuff way beyond my cap- you know, capabilities of understanding. I'm looking at the yeah. doc because I'm presuming you can talk about all that sort of stuff. But, but um, <laughs> all of that stuff drives what people can afford to pay. Yeah. Then you've got elitism because at the end of the day you've got a scarcity issue and who wants to live close to the city? Those that earn more money, right, those that earn more right, money right. have more capacity to pay and so that's going to be basically what underpins it. So it's, it is purely supply and demand at some level. I mean, you, you can't – it's very hard to add more houses in, yeah. in, in the Sydney eastern suburbs, for example. They're already built out around the foreshore. Maybe you can knock down a house and build a couple of villas. Maybe you can knock down yeah. a couple of villas and build a, a high-rise. But at some point the ROI and that stuff starts to fall away. If you've got – 25 million, 30 million, 40 million Australians over time all wanting to live in the eastern suburbs, is that enough just to kind of create that demand that, that gives it that sort of market-beating growth in that, in that area? Well, it's certainly done that in the past, okay. you know, and, and I can't foresee with population growth that it's going to change really yeah, yeah. because it's always going to be scarce and every now and then you get one of those houses that knock down and a duplex put on, mm. that puts more scarcity on the remaining <laughs> house. You know what I mean? That's a good so, point. Yeah. That's a good point. Okay, so I, I'm going to assume from that comment that, you're saying that a freestanding house is is the better of the investment options? Well, and here's the thing too. So, okay, so freestanding house in, in these sort of areas is a lot of money. So yeah. you are going to be sinking a lot of money into one asset yeah. and that's where I'm not so, you know, I think if you if you can live in it, that's a different conversation. Okay. But to be going running around thinking you have to buy houses because land is where the value is mm-hmm. and there's some myths in that as well, right? You know, that's a dangerous assumption to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I do fully believe that people should not only invest in property, okay? So, so therefore, I'm like, well, once you spend $2 million, for argument's sake, buying <laughs> yeah, one asset, right. how much have you got left you to invest? Out, right? Yeah, how yeah. much have you got left to diversify? And your return in terms of your yield. Yeah. Now, I never buy for yield ever okay. because you're not going to borrow that much money and take that much risk to buy for yield. Okay. Really, you can get yield doing other things and I'm sure you can tell everybody how you can get yield. <laughs> we have some ideas. Yeah. I mean, but you know, and that's what I actually point people to financial planner and say, you yeah. go to a financial planner who actually understands property but actually can talk to you about all the other ways mm-hmm. that you can get yield into your portfolio right, rather right. than buying a property for yield mm-hmm. because you are locking a lot of money away, a lot of borrowing capacity away on an asset that isn't necessarily going to grow in value and that to me just is insane. So... Right. Back to the yield, if you're going to buy a really, you know, cracker asset, as in a $2 million house, for argument's yeah, sake, yeah. you might only get 2% yield on that. <laughs> it's not going to pay the bills. It's not, it's not going to pay the interest pay, bill, more yeah. importantly. And no, it won't pay the yeah, interest bill. Yeah. So you're going to be front, you know, you're going to be um, compensating for that out of your income. Right, right, right. And that might be your decision mm, if you're mm. early enough in your trajectory yeah. and you've got loads of, you know, you're going to, you're going to become a surgeon or something, you're going yeah, to earn bucket yeah. loads, um, <laughs> it might be a great thing to do. Yeah. But for most people, that is certainly not a smart thing to do. All right, so you're not buying for yield. Maybe you're not buying an expensive freestanding house and you're not buying outside 10Ks from the Sydney CBD. Trying not what to. <laughs> are you looking for? What, what makes for a good property investment inside those criteria? Yeah, so look, 
some some houses, yes, can be, and it may be that you for a value add investor, so someone who actually does want to actually in, in do some renovations, for mm-hmm. instance, at some point in the future, you know, a small semi-detached house, for argument's sake, in an inner city suburb, might be a great opportunity because you can buy, you can sit on the lower yield, and mm-hmm. you can just suck that up for a bit of time. You're going to get some capital growth, and then you're going to have an injection of growth. Um, because you're going to inject and invest more in that. You don't have to pay stamp duty a second time around. You don't right, have to increase right. your land tax. Um, and land tax is another reason that I hate the current land tax system. <laughs> but, um, you know, so land tax is something that people buying freestanding or, or just Torrance Total Houses on land have to contend with when yeah. they're investing. So, you, And that's a horrible, horrible bill that comes in every year, yes. I know. Yes. Um, so, you know, so if you're going to buy a house to add value to down the track, that that's that can be a very successful okay. um, thing to do. I like apartments but nowhere near where you've got um, massive development and definitely I don't like new apartments. I like small boutique apartments, you know, ideally with some level of scarcity. It might be Art Deco, it might be warehouse okay. conversion, et cetera, et cetera. That's not to say we don't buy the red brick you know, three-storey yep. walk-ups. We can do those in, in the right apartments, the right maintenance, the right type building, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And on the odd occasion, we do buy in a larger complex because that complex has certain unique characteristics that lend itself to being a really good mm. investment. Mm. So we've got to sort of be understand the principles of investment and then identify buildings and locations and apartments within those buildings as well that, f- you know, fulfil those criteria. And that's that's the benefit of the expert. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge... Um, critic of overpriced financial advice, for example. I'm also be a huge critic of overpriced property advice if you're not getting value from mm. it. But if you can bring those things to bear, sometimes paying small percentages of, of purchase prices to avoid some of those traps, take advantage of some of the opportunities that an expert who works in this thing 24-7, you know, we all live in a house, so we all think we're experts. Yes. You, go to the, you, you open the, I was going to say, you open the, um, the real estate catalog. Not, I don't think they're around anymore. You jump online and you kind of, you, you kind of, you know, you find it, you find a property. I can buy that. I know everything about that. Yeah. Those mistakes that maybe you wouldn't know unless you've been doing it regularly are the sort of things I guess a buyer's agent can bring mm. to to a buyer. Assume you, for those who know Sydney, I assume you drive through Green, Green Square with your eyes closed at the moment. Is that <laughs> apartments and apartments built on top of apartments? Yes. I, I imagine you haven't bought anything there recently. No. <laughs> Tend not to. And look, that's sort of interesting too because all that overdevelopment, you've got North Ride, you've got Green Square, yeah. you've got Mascot, you've got all that stuff, sort of gives me the heebie-jeebies to be yeah, honest. It's, yeah. it's like sort of the new generation suburbia. Which that gives me the oh, heebie-jeebies right. too just quietly. But um, um, is, that the, is that the equivalent of the new farms or the, or the Docklands in the other cities? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh. look, they were ahead of us in terms of having overdevelopment. That's <laughs> true. Um, and certainly Sydney's now done a great job of adding to that. Um, yeah, best to catch up. And well, yeah, it's sort of interesting too because it does. It has actually had a ripple effect in terms of rental yields as well in in far flung suburbs. You know, mm, I've got mm. been speaking to by, um, property managers say in Bondi, and you know, you've seen the impact where some tenants are going. Oh, I'm not going to rent an old apartment in Bondi. I'm actually going to go and rent something brand new in Mascot, and I'll get right. some sort of discount, etc., etc., etc. So yeah, it is. Okay. It, there's a while for that to to you know absorb into the, the market. Yeah, right, yeah, right, exactly. Uh, are there other things that you are specifically avoiding? So you've talked about the big overdevelopment. You've talked about potentially paying too much for a single building you're simply not going to get a return from. Is there is there a don't buy checklist? <laughs> yeah, look, I'll tell you what. I think seriously there's probably 5 to 10% of property that we would seriously consider looking at um, and advising a client on. Like wow. there's there's a lot. So 19 out of 20 property sales this weekend are going to be bad deals for the buyer. Mm, That's yeah. phenomenal. Mm. Is, is there, are there any, can you give us a couple of of things to avoid in that in that oh, main roads you know right. main roads people buy on main roads when it's a hot market and there's a hot market now in sydney and melbourne is mm-hmm. i think some 
CoreLogic data came out very recently showing the tra- the growth trajectory since the election. Something like 12% has been added to uh, median house price. That's phenomenal, In both each city. Um, you know, so so FOMO kicks in. People go, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Didn't we just behind. do this? Yeah, yeah. We've just, exactly, we've just been through this. Yeah, Everyone's got short yeah. memories. Okay, should have bought in 2018, everybody, but you're all sitting on your hands going, I want to work and see what the market does. Yeah. And now you can know. And the market's too hot, I'm not buying. Then the market's falling, I'm not buying. Yeah. Now it's back to the market's like, too hot, I'm not buying. What are waiting then? for? So, so here they all are back in, back in fully, fl- you know, fully fledged, all ready to go. Yep. And now's the time when people start really compromising on things that you can't fix. You can't mm. fix the main road. Right, okay. Makes you sense. can't fix it. Yep. Um, there's certain situations where you've got houses like – some terraces, for instance, where they're really, really narrow and skinny and you've got nothing you can do about it. You've mm, got a steep mm. staircase, 45-degree staircase. <laughs> you can never get a bathroom upstairs, for instance. Right, of course. You know, yeah, stuff like yeah. that that is okay. fundamentally irritating. Mm. People will overlook when the market's hot and when the market's flat, they will pick it to pieces and they won't touch it. Yeah, nice. I... Um, so look, I'm a. I can't saw a piece of wood straight. So, so full disclosure, is there really enough benefit? I've always looked at renovating. You look at those houses. Okay, I'd love to fix that one up. But then I think, by the time I've done it and wasted the time and spent the money and paid for a builder's or or, or a, you know a handyman's margin and then all that kind of stuff, is there enough upside in in buying to renovate? Is that just kind of, one of those pipe dreams everyone thinks <laughs> they can do? Yeah. Is, it, is it worth doing? Um, sometimes. Look, okay. the reality is most people overestimate their abilities and they underestimate the cost. <laughs> and, you know, there's there's a, you know, people making a fortune in these, you know, how to renovate well, courses and right, stuff like that. Right. And, and the TV and, shows and all that kind of yeah, stuff. How hard could it be? 100 grand here just, to, just for the taking, I right? I know. When they give you these little, you know, these little rules of thumb, like, you know, you should never spend more than, I don't know, what's 2% yeah, yeah. of the value on your kitchen or whatever it okay, is. And, okay. and, and they don't work. You know, because some properties shouldn't be renovated. Right. You know, some like those little skinny terrace, for instance. Yeah, yeah you can go put a beautiful new kitchen and bathroom in that. But if those 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 rooms are in the wrong part of the house, and you can't actually, right, without substantial okay. uh, expense, rejig the floor plan, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then that's not a quick and dirty reno. You yeah. know, so if the floor plan's right. Yep. And you're just basically fixing up a few things. Yeah, you can do one, but you know, it, not every property is equal in that regard. It makes sense. Now, speaking of that, new developments. Mm. I, so, a couple of things. I, I um, one of the things, one of the things that's always stuck with me from our conversation. I think it was one of the podcasts I was listening to previously to, to prior to being on your your podcast, Elephant in the Room, by the way. Oh, so, listeners, have a look <laughs> for that. Um, you you talked about the whole you know only one left kind of oh, thing yeah. on new development, right? And and the marketing is really clear. It's the old era of oh, you've got to get in now because they're almost gone and you're creating that fear of missing out that we yeah. always talk about. I don't want to be the last one in. And you made the point that means people have preferred every single other unit or prop development in the place. This is the least popular. This is the one no one yeah. else wants to buy. So when they say only one left got to get in. <laughs> the dregs. You're, why you're, you're saying why would you buy the one no one else has already wanted? Yeah. And I'm going to say I felt a bit stupid when I heard that because I'm like, of course that's true, yeah. but I'd fallen for the marketing. Well, I mean, we all do. I mean, because at the end of the day, until you challenge on it, you go, oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, we all do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I know some developers actually say, oh, this is the, the marketing suite. <laughs> you know, but the reality is they move the furniture from one property to another throughout <laughs> it, you know, if, if it's built. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, it's the marketing suite because it's the last uh-huh, one you own. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you know, I think if you are going to buy a new development, Really, it's got to. I personally don't do it for investing. Right. Um, if you're going to do it as an owner occupier, there's a 
lot of due diligence that you need to do. I think that really in recent times we've had some pretty stark reminders oh, of we? just how lax our whole system is yeah, in terms yeah. of, you know, build quality. Again, not to, not to over-promote your podcast, but you've also had some, some people on recently talking yeah. about some of that stuff, which is really, if you're going to buy a new development, I guess, A, Veronica would probably say don't do it, but B, <laughs> if you're going to and you're, you're not going to listen to that advice, at least listen to the episode. I don't remember the lady's name, but you had a lady on who was talking about some of the tips and tracks and just some of the things to be really, really careful of. We've had a number. I mean, we've right, had, right. you know, with the conveyancer, for instance, around the contract, mm-hmm. that was Jenny Tonner. And then we also in, in interviewed Karen Stiles. She's the uh, executive officer of the Karen's Owners Corporation yes, Network, yes, the yes. OCN. And, oh, my God, that was just an enlightening episode. <laughs> in, we've had, in a really and, bad way. <laughs> yeah. And we've, we interview, we've interviewed engineers. You know, right, we've, right, we've really right. had some very interesting conversations about this. Yeah, okay. Nice one. Let me... Let me kind of go to just just lay out for people very quickly. They can listen to your podcast and get more. Why don't you prefer to buy in new developments? What, what are the what are the traps? What are the reasons you mm. shouldn't be doing that? Well, I think the build quality probably is num- number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just the element of risk. And for me, it is all about risk. I like to minimise risk when you're buying property. It's it's so much money, so much borrowing. As I said, you know, mm, it's great mm. that you can leverage. That's a wonderful thing about uh-huh. property. Yeah, the ability, only the upside there, right? <laughs> yeah, the ability to leverage, but that's only if you get yourself a good asset. Right. So what the problem is with a lot of these new builds is that they're built as investor stock, right? And as opposed to investor grade, and these are okay. terms that you will hear banded around. A lot of spookers use them as well. <laughs> um, but the principle behind investor grade is that fundamentally it's going to go up in value. Yeah. You know, yeah. the principle behind investor stock is it's been developed to flog to unsuspecting <laughs> investors. And I use the word investors with rabbit ears around yes, it because yes. you're not investing if you're buying a piece of crap that's going to lose money. Yeah. Um, you're actually hoping for the best. So you're doing a bit of wishful thinking. And yeah. so this stuff has been developed and there's no scarcity. Mm-hmm. You've got issue, potential issues with build quality. You've also got the fact that um, you're paying a premium at the outset. Mm. So you're going to lose capital value for a period of time. Mm-hmm. There are so many of these buildings that are the beginning of a whole massive big development. And so you, you've got to understand that you're at the beginning, then you may not get capital growth for another 10 years until they're finished. Um, it's a long time. Yeah, there is. Yeah, I mean, there's just yeah. so many reasons, um, really. And um, that's just tip of the iceberg. Yes, I can imagine. Now, I, I will again reference one of your episodes because one I particularly liked, and again, I can't remember the gentleman's name. I should have done a bit more bit more work on this one. But, uh, <laughs> I'll you, remind you. you talk, thank you. you. You had one guest also had a, and you had a property Dumbo section, which I'll talk about as well. But uh, you asked for this particular gentleman's property Dumbo and he talked about a, I think it might have been a friend of his, maybe it was him, he was just pretending it was a friend, yeah. but who, who, had, who bought a um, bought a property off the plan mm-hmm. uh, that had a coffee table in the middle of the lounge room oh. on, on, <laughs> on the, the plan. On the plan, yeah. Which was wonderful. And you think, great, a coffee table, it's nice they put that feature in. Turned out, what was it? A column. <laughs> so, so in the middle of his lounge room, he's got a, co- a supportive column holding the place up. Yeah. That in theory he's got to look around to see the TV. He looked at the plan and went, oh, coffee table, that's cool. And frankly, <laughs> the builder was probably, oh, well, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if you said who it was, so I won't, I won't make allegations that get me in trouble. In any case, they could have been more clear. By the same token, it wasn't, you know, a floor plan is a top-down look. You're looking down and that's a column mm. and that's there. They could have been a little bit clearer in describing what it was. Maybe. But again, one of those things about you buy off the plan, you think that's what you're getting. Well, a lot of people can't read plans. Right, right. So, you know, I see I see properties. It's interesting too. I mean, you know, I like to look at a plan and, and I think, oh, that, why? That's really weird. Couldn't have done it that way. It would have been better, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah, and people don't, they don't get it. And also when you're buying off the plan, you'll notice there's not any dimensions on those rooms. 
Ah. So, you know, visually, well, the room could be very, very small. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what often happens when you sit down, you look at plans side by mm. side, and we do this when we're doing pricing research for properties, and I always make the team print the plan off, and mm. I know it's wasting a few, you know, trees, actually work out the dimensions for the room. It's very manual and boring. If right. anyone's got this really great way to automate this, please <laughs> tell me. Um, but But... Put the dimensions down and really lay them down. How much total living is in that in that property? How right, much yeah. how much bigger the bedrooms, etc. So with your with your plans, it's really easy to be hoodwinked by just mm. looking at something and not understanding it. It's the old day. It's the equivalent of putting the really tiny munchkin bed in the bedrooms, right? When someone's oh. selling a place, <laughs> wow, there's so much space in this bedroom. There's this little tiny. They bed take that's... the feet off. <laughs> they're actually, there are this, there are style of tricks. <laughs> Take the first, but there's also they seem like actually literally smaller beds, are they, or is it just they visual? They use doubles, right? right so they can call go. it a double bedroom. But actually, <laughs> when we were filming once in Melbourne, I remember telling some contributors to the show mm, we were mm. looking at an apartment in Melbourne, and I, I was telling them a story about how they use these little beds and they take the feet off and it makes the room look bigger. I said, look, <laughs> and I go to um, show them in this particular ha- uh, apartment we we're in, and I lifted up the the sheet, you know, the doona and mm, that mm. sort of stuff, and discovered that the bed was actually a pile of boxes that oh, they'd dear. made a bed out of. Imagine <laughs> if someone. Sat on it. <laughs> that's brilliant. So a few dollars on the styling, I suppose. Oh yeah, unless no, no get, wheels on that bed. I can tell three. you, that's right. Really <laughs> Solves that problem. No wheels to take off. All right. Now let, let me go back to the the psychology, the elephant in the room again. The idea is the the psychological tips and tricks. Mm-hmm. We talked about a couple already. What are, what are a couple of other favourites of yours that you, you suggest buyers be careful of? Maybe even sellers be careful of. Yeah. When it comes to buying and selling real estate. So yeah, our first episode. You know, our foundational episode mm-hmm. was with Simon Russell, who's a behavioural yes. scientist yes. in the finance field. And so he went off to his first ever, ever auction and comes back and says, oh, my God, there's all these biases. It's really fantastic. <laughs> so our first episode is all about that. Excellent. One of the ones that I find interesting is consistency bias. Okay. So once you've started something, then you feel compelled to complete doing it, complete, so continue true, doing it. it. Yeah. Um, and and Simon, you find excuses to do it, right? Well, yeah, and Simon used the word, we don't want to appear capricious, and mm-hmm. I think that's such a good word because it's like, you know, at the end we do something, we, we don't want to look fickle, we don't yeah. want to look stupid, yeah, or yeah, look, yeah. Don't, don't want to look like we we're wasting somebody's time. Mm-hmm. And so you've made that first offer and you're in. Yeah. And have yeah, often people do that. They haven't really actually considered what next, mm-hmm. you know, and that happens at auction too. Okay. I've seen it happen. I love going to auctions even when they're not bidding um, because I really watch what is going on in people's faces yeah, and yeah. their body language and everything. And yeah. they've started bidding and mm-hmm. then, oh, hadn't really thought about what if it goes over that price? <laughs> yeah. Am I prepared to pay it or not? And then you right. see couples arguing in the middle of an auction. Um, this is not the time, guys, yeah, to work right. out what your maximum bid is on that property. Right. So that 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 consistency bias is rather interesting. And, and certainly in auctions you see it a lot because the, the auctioning wants to play on that. Yeah, uh, there's a couple there just for, for what it's worth. I think for companies, in particular, mergers and acquisitions have the same kind of issue. Mm-hmm. Once you're considering a merger, you kind of find a way to make it happen, right? Mm. You kind of once you start that process, the M and A team are already on board, and you're already considering it. One of the interesting—I don't know if this applies to property. One of the interesting things that um, that behavioural scientists recommend is have at least another idea on the table. Ah, so you're yeah. comparing the two mm. and choosing the best one. If you're saying should we buy company X or should we invest in this particular merger acquisition? You find a reason to say yes because there's people who are justifying their job mm. and you're considering it and you want to weigh it up and no one wants to think the time is wasted. Exactly to your point, having a second option, either do nothing or how about this one instead, it makes you do that comparison job of actually is this the right thing to be doing? So yeah. that's interesting I find for, from that from a prop, from an investing perspective. Yeah, from, so you don't get that tunnel shares. vision. Exactly. Mm. The other thing is um, you mentioned investigating investor stock and just another, another parallel. 
that to me sounds a bit like the bottom end of the of the share market, right? Mm. So investor stock is the dodgy biotech or or specy miner, right? That that basically its business is getting money from shareholders rather than actually going <laughs> yes. and doing the mining. So <laughs> that's that's the that's the yeah. investor stock one. That's the hey, if we list this thing, mm. maybe people maybe people will buy the shares. Maybe we can raise some more money, more money, more money. I think it's outright fraud, although sometimes it is. Mm. It's more just that idea of you know that's the investor stock. That's the if we can convince enough people for long enough, maybe eventually we'll strike it rich. If we don't, no skin of our nose. If we do, we make a fortune. Wow. Investor grade then is yeah. the, the reverse, which is mm. literally is this company worth buying? And and like you with property at the Motley Fool, we try and make sure that we're recommending investor grade stuff, yep. not just things that are out there because investors might possibly buy them, which is unfortunately, again, I'm not sure if it's 9 out of 20, but it's probably not far off in the stock market. There's a whole mm. lot of rubbish out there that's, that's simply not worth buying. I think Interesting. That's probably a, yeah, good parallel. A good parallel. comparison. Yeah, mm. exactly, exactly. And that feeds into the sunk cost bias as well. Oh, yeah. So, you know, because – and this is what happens with, with property buyers and once they've spent money on their building a pest and oh, yeah. having the contract reviewed and, <laughs> and that sort of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. we have to watch in our business, you yeah. know, just because we've done all this evaluation on the property. You know, we're, oh, it's cool. one of our yeah. KPIs yeah, is, well, yeah. how many properties have we actually told our clients not to go for? That's cool. Um, because it was like once we uncover something, it's like mm. just because mm. you've done all that, rule line in the sand, yeah. thank you for the fact that now we know we shouldn't be touching it. Yeah. You know. I wonder if if I was a real estate agent, I was going to be dodgy and I wouldn't do either of those things necessarily, but <laughs> um, I wonder if I'd, I'd do some sort of deal with cut price property and building and pest inspections, right? For exactly oh, that they do. Just, just get people yeah. started on that path mm. so they feel like they're in on that on that one. Oh, they 100% do. There's these ones where you can... Uh, and I'm not saying all of these are dodgy, but yeah, there some are. Um, yeah. Where you can get a building in pest, you only pay say forty nine dollars, and if you buy the yeah. property, you you pay the rest of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it gets you into that. Totally right. Yeah, yeah. yeah just get over mm. those first obstacles and get people on that mm. on that conveyor belt. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna I've got a bugbear. I've got a I've got a. You've already dispelled my my uh, property should all go up at the same price and be roughly efficiently priced. So I'll, <laughs> I'll give that one up. Nice idea. I want to I want to you with another one. <laughs> mm. The whole auction strategy thing. Now, you've just mm. written a book about auction ready. So, I'm, again, yep. I'm either going to completely you know, pulp the book after this or you're going to convince me <laughs> I'm wrong. So, one or the other is going to happen. Mm. Um, I, I find that high, I've, the idea of auction strategy, at least on the surface, mm. to be a bit hard to take, right? Mm. If I know how much I'm – the three of us are at an auction, yep. you, me and Doc, we're all going to go and – we know what our limits are mm. within some degree of reason. Mm. We're, one of us is going to buy, probably the one with the highest limit given the circumstances more yep. often than not. Mm. Whether I go first or last, whether I make a killer bid or I don't, isn't isn't the property still going to go to the person who simply has the most money to spend on this particular property on the day? Is there really a strategy that that actually can change the outcome? I would have thought, generally speaking, that you can almost write your limits down on a piece of paper before mm. the auction. You just take the top one, call the whole thing off, and not worry with the theatre. <laughs> you know, is is there any is it does it actually make a difference, or is it just we all feel better because again the psychological biases? I've added some value. I have a strategy. Somehow I'm winning this game. Mm. When at the end of the day, it's just like, who's got the most buying power? Look, yes and no. I think what you're saying a lot of the time is true. The person with the deepest pockets will buy the property. Right, right. Um, the, the the auction strategy is a bit like having a birth plan. Now, I'm a woman, so I've given birth. So I guess you guys haven't. No. Um, can, can... But <laughs> have you got wives that have yes, given ma'am. birth? Right, okay. So, you know, the whole birth plan thing and you yes. write it all out and it's like, oh, that's good because, you know, I'm in total control here. What a lot of cod's wallet. <laughs> You know, and yeah, it, yeah. so so the auction strategy thing, and the book, and in the book, I don't think I've actually written about auction strategies. Interestingly enough, I oh, hope yeah. I haven't used that word now. I think I'm saying this <laughs> because buy the book next week and find out whether Veronica has out, included and auction And if strategy. I have, you send it back, and I'll give you your money back. Um, oh, there you go. So, There's an offer. But um, so the reality is, you've got to understand what's likely to happen at the auction. You've got to yeah. have sort of some tools in your kit bag and some strategy or tactics, not strategies. Okay, mm-hmm. let's let's look at tactics differently. The strategy is. Well, I've decided I want to buy that property and I have to go to auction. Yep. That's sort of the strategy, right. isn't it, yes, really? It's clear. The, the tactics are okay, well, 
So we go to auction. I've got to work out how much money I'm going to spend on that property and I'm going to pressure test, stress test that limit before I go to auction. That's the thing that most people don't do and that's the reason there is flex in terms of it's not always the person with the deepest pockets that buys the property. Explain that in a bit more detail for us. Okay, so people who go and have set their limit before and really understand exactly how far they'll go and push themselves even a little bit beyond that so they know what their walkaway price is. They can bid differently to somebody who's gone with a wishful thinking price (laughs) and then the the BAFTA it's called, you know, the best alternative whatever. Uh, You know, when you're in negotiation, there's like, so where they'll go to basically if they're in momentum, if they've got the consistency bias happening and they've already bid and they've started bidding or they're lulled into the momentum or they're sucked in or they're trying to compete with that guy over there. Right. That stuff happens at auctions. Okay. So I'm looking, okay, I know what my limit is. I'm looking at the crowd and I'm thinking, how can I bid in a way that's going to disrupt this and hopefully give me and my client an opportunity and an advantage, right? And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And the advantage here is basically stopping someone else getting carried away and overbidding. Yeah. So I've had people say to me after auction, I don't know how you did it, but you got me to stop before my limit. That (laughs) to me is like high five. (laughs) Can I just record you saying that? Can I have half the difference, please? Yeah, yeah. How much do I say? Um, You know, go back to my client. Hey, did you hear that? Um, So it does happen. It can happen. You can outpsych people, but you can't use the same method every time. You know, I have actually pissed buyers off. (laughs) I have. I was at an auction recently and, and, you know, the auctioneer even, I just went, oops, I've I've upset him. (laughs) Haven't I? And the auctioneer laughed because he knows me. And he went, oh, you might have. You know, and um, so you've got to be careful. There are certain... Play ways that you can play it. The mm. thing is, though, if I look like I've got bottomless pockets and I that freedom within the fence or running to the cliff or that sort of stuff, if I look like I'm never going to stop, yeah. there are times that I can use that to actually stop somebody else. Okay. And the other thing too is what I don't do is do the typical thing where you start big bids and you go smaller, smaller, smaller until the end you're doing bids in thousands and they can go for $100,000 <laughs> in one, yeah, one, right. one, yeah. one. Oh, oh. Look at my wife, look at my husband, one. All this stuff gets drawn out forever. Right. They're in it, right? Right. right. Whereas you go in, oh, look, bugger this. This is going to go on forever. I know there's a hundred grand to be added to it. I'm going to okay. go. No, I'll give you thirteen or okay. something like that. So you can circumvent and stop that hypnosis okay. effect, if right, you right, like, right. during auction. And, and that the idea is there that stops the other people going on top of that because it feels like such a big bid. They feel like they're not going to win it. Is that what? Well, gets they them get to... snapped out of that reverie or whatever they're okay. in, you know, because they do think one thousand. Oh, that person struggled. Maybe my next one thousand will right, actually I buy see. it. You I know, see, so and, oh, it doesn't feel too much. They've forgotten that you know it's, right. you know, there's. Two million yeah. and whatever, yeah, but they're going right. one, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so two, two million and twelve thousand dollars and fifty five cents. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the idea of that is that it, it kind of knocks out the it lets, either allows your client to buy for a cheaper price because you knock the other guy out, or you simply just don't make sure your current client's not overbidding in, mm. in the same kind of scenario. Are there, are there three yeah, we sides don't, of that? We don't want to play a part in in right. sort of bidding that we know is not really in our client's best interest. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, we're, and we're trying to stop it. Nice. I'll ask you a couple of a couple of um, theoretical questions now. Mm. Some, some topics I know you're pretty passionate about. You mentioned land tax already. Uh. So I'm going to ask you about that. I'm also going to. So let's let's bundle the taxes up. Mm. So we know. I know you guys were, were pretty uh, pretty strident pre-election about the, <laughs> yes. the negative gearing and the mm. capital gains tax changes. Mm. You've also talked about land tax. So just if I made you treasurer for a day, I'm not going to because I'm getting mm. that job if it's up. But but assume I'm going <laughs> to give you the option. What, what's the what's the right structure 
because um, I know you're not, you're not again, you're not a spruik, you're not here for just what's the best for highest mm. possible property prices. What's the best structure when it comes to property taxation, including things like negative gearing and capital gains? Yeah, and look, I am not an expert in this area and I literally have sort of some half-formed views. So I'm best to just give you my half-formed views and say if I went... So we do every week, the listeners are used to that. If I was treasurer for a day, I'd be frigging diabolical. Um, we interviewed Brendan Coates about this yes. as well, which was quite interesting. But um, so, so with, uh, so the negative gearing thing, first, starters like what really got me on that was that it wasn't called the capital gains tax you know uh, policy yes it was yes. called the negative gearing tax That's policy right. and i'm like you know what you're able to negative gear other assets other investments mm-hmm. really why should we be pulling that out of property and saying you can't do it with property so I, I don't see that as being fair i also when you looked at the the statistics and the proportion of people actually using negative gearing it's actually skewed towards the lower income earners anyway okay. you know most of my clients I say you know does it bother you and go well, we don't even worry about negative gearing right, it's okay. not not a reason for us buying property so i don't believe you should be buying property for tax uh, breaks. Amen. So therein lies, well, then in reality, I go, oh, well, you shouldn't have negative gearing because it encourages people and with this whole depreciation thing and encourages the spruikers and they just bang on about it. So in a way, it's bad. Yeah. It was going to be worse under Labor because it was only going to be available on new property. Right. So that was just diabolical. It's about pushing people towards new developments. Oh, just shocking. <laughs> it's bad enough as it is, and yeah, that just made right. it worse, right? Got another couple of high-rises in the place that's already yeah, more, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can hear yeah. the spookers now. Yeah. Woo, yeehaw! <laughs> so, so that, in terms of the negative gearing yeah. sort of part of it, yeah. The capital gains tax concession is an interesting one because mm. that is, I think that's too generous. So Labor was talking about halving that from a 50% discount to yeah. a 25% discount. Yeah, yeah. And you're in favour of that change? Well, I'm or? not necessarily not in favour of it. I okay. think that needs to be looked at, absolutely. Right. And and whether that's the right um, number or mm-hmm. not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But but certainly, you know, if you look back to when the capital gains tax concession was changed mm-hmm. by the Howard government, yeah. well, we had oh, 8% inflation. You know, we, it was a different... <laughs> exactly, yeah. Do you know, yeah, it was yeah. a, money was going up at a different rate. It was a different uh, landscape. Mm, so mm, those, mm. and it was put in to simplify things because trying to work out what the concession That's should right. be before then was a bloody nightmare. I remember the back page of the Business Review Weekly, the old magazine, for those mm. who aren't old enough to remember that. You're not, <laughs> Veronica, you're too young, but oh, Doc and I remember young, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually had the capital gains tax index, the, the indices from each year, right? So if you bought the property in 1982, you had to apply this factor for sale <laughs> to calculate the capital gains tax because yeah, it was indexed to inflation back in the day. Mm. That was done away with and the 50% arbitrary discount put in. I, I'm kind of with you a little bit. I don't. I don't necessarily see that unearned income in that in that frame should be taxed any more lightly than earned income. If mm. I work for something, I got to pay a higher tax. If I buy something and flog it off five years later for a profit, I don't necessarily see why that makes sense. Yeah. On the flip side, I also get the idea that paying tax on inflation also doesn't seem particularly yep. like it should be. You know, it, it's kind of that's the cost of living, right? Mm. So pay tax on that just because it's gone up also seems unreasonable. Yeah. But an arbitrary number, either way, I think to my mind, is a bit. It's kind of. I don't know if it's a better solution. It's, it's absolutely simpler, much mm. less complex. But if you were to buy an asset sold twelve, you know, twelve months and one day later, you pay half the tax. If you hold that for twenty five years, it's actually possible you would have been better off under the old inflation indexing scheme because you hold it for the long term. Inflation was larger than that. Yeah. And so you kind of it was this arbitrary one where it actually, it, in theory, it's a long term discount, but it's not really. It's like a, a year and a bit discount, which is much bigger. Yeah. The longer you go the less attractive it actually is. So it actually disincentivizes super long-term holding periods. Yeah, look, I, I agree. I actually am in favour more of a 
an annual index. Right, right. Because yeah, I just yeah. think that's realistic. Yes, yes. You know, and, yeah. and but so, yes. So, but, but I do think 50% is too generous and I'm happy to take it. Hey. Um, <laughs> that's right, exactly. But I, but yeah. I just was really interested that that, yeah. that wasn't pitched as the capital gains tax policy. It hardly got talked about. Yeah, it was hardly. All about gearing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was really the thing that investors should be more worried about, yes. to be quite frank. Yes. So it was just sort of that whole spin thing that really just annoyed the crap out of me. Um, <laughs> I could tell listening to the podcast. Yeah, a little I know. Bit you know, he's got a bit riled. I mean, I hate stupidity and that to me just seems so obvious. And then, you know, and anyway. Um, so in terms of land tax, look, I find land tax the way it is is just really unfair. Tell us why. Well, it's a bit like the window tax and, the, you know, or the, or the daff- is it the tulip tax? Or I mean, it's just, yeah. it, it's a bit arbitrary, right? Okay. For starters, you're not, you don't have to earn any income to pay the tax. Right. So it's always like a tax on being wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um which is not attached to anything. That's a bit... Th- and... I, I'm, I'm with you, uh, not, to, not to agree for the sake of it, but I always find it difficult to tax something that doesn't actually have a cash flow attached. Mm, yeah. So to have to sort of carve off a section of some a, a fixed asset yeah. to pay a tax seems a little bit unreasonable to me for that reason. It seems like, you know, if you're, earning it to, if you're renting it out, fine. If you're doing something with it, if it's a, giving you a mm. dividend income or cash savings account, something coming to you, taking take a slice of that makes sense. To have to divvy up the farm and take an acre off here, an acre off mm. there, or, or, or the property, whatever it is, just never made particular sense to me. It's also, if you look at it from an investment point of view, okay, so you could say, say you got your $2 million, say, or $1 million even. Yeah. You got a million dollar house on land and, you, and you're paying whatever land tax is on that versus you got a million dollar apartment in a great area right, and you're paying right, a much, right. much more, smaller percentage of land tax. Yes. It might even be a better asset. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, just because and, of the and land yet you're paying, less. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so it just seems very arbitrary in terms of, you know, the t- it's choosing a particular type of wealth. Yes. As well, and and I just I I'm just uncomfortable with it. And our listeners will know that was my uh, argument. I, th- I don't know about docs. I've been more strident on it because I'm just generally that sort of person. Docs are much more casual and laid back than I am. I listen to Tesla as I Economists think land tax is very fair. <laughs> docs are computer science PhD, so uh, I'm not sure what, what computer science PhDs think. Um, but from a you know the same thing with with the franking credits, right? People taking that away and saying you should pay more on tax more tax on, on earnings because it happens to be shares rather than property or cash in the bank or mm. art or anything else. Yeah. Again, that arbitrary kind of just pick an asset class and tax it differently yeah. because it happens to be a different asset class mm. just seems to go against all kind of basic fairness or just pure, it's you know. political. doesn't make a lot it's of sense, does it? It's a bit sort of, you know, top poppy-ish and all that sort of stuff. And, I, you know, really I'm, like I think you should pay tax. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at Greece as a company, as a country that people don't like paying tax. It doesn't do well for the economy, right? So you gotta, <laughs> we've got to pay tax. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the more, I guess what? The more tax you pay, it means you've made more money. Well, that's, that's kind of a nice the thing, thing, too, right? You know, I'm quite happy to have a whopping <laughs> great tax bill. <laughs> be the best problem in the world. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yep, yep. yeah. I, I will pay as much tax as I possibly can. Please. As my <laughs> please. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We're not getting much disagreement here. Doc, <laughs> you, you've, been, you've been quiet. Is that because you agree or because you disagree? Can't get a word in. There was that too. <laughs> well, I... I I actually agree with the uh, policy of. Uh, uh, I actually dislike negative gearing like anything. Okay. I actually, I, and the reason I think is exactly the reason uh, you pointed out is uh, negative gearing is provided to uh, the group that is the most vulnerable, mm. right? And, um, you know, as property prices go up and as death to disposable income ratios increase, that's the group that's most vulnerable, right? Mm. So if something happens, the people with negative gearing are the ones who are going to be destroyed. Yeah. And they will be the middle class, lower middle class, whatever you want to call it, the hardworking people, right? Mm. Not the rich ones. No. Um, so I'm, I was actually... Get, they probably can't afford, right? Yeah, the the so, ones trying to replace income yeah, with property. So mm. I was actually in favor of, you know, 
I would just get rid of negative gearing altogether because negative gearing for everything for everything yeah 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 for everything it, it just doesn't make mm. sense because it's you know who's it really helping right are we helping um, uh, if we are helping people to invest who can't invest in that large an asset mm. they shouldn't be investing in that large an yeah. asset right um, that's my belief maybe you start small and you grow slowly um, it just appears to be an outsized risk i don't have an opinion about um, land taxes i mean i have an actual opinion about um, stamp duty that mm. we property i we think that got, is we haven't done that uh, yet have we <laughs> that i think is a government mechanism and that encourages property flipping so i would basically say keep land tax and get rid of stamp duty altogether so you're saying stamp duty encourages property flipping no stamp duty encourages government policies for property flipping. <laughs> right. Because I want the revenue. Right? Because that's a, <laughs> that's a huge income, right? So stamp duty is very, very um, I have a number of things I could say. <laughs> so, so stamp duty is very, um, um, it's a very Australian thing, right, mm. to property, right? Land tax is applied in a lot of different places, mm. basically, right? So uh, you could look at land tax as another form of taxation in mm. that sense, right? And, you know, people could pay income tax, I guess, and we could get rid of, you know, people could pay more income tax, which would address Scott's mm. question, and we could get rid of it. But stamp duty by design um, puts the state at uh, an incentive to cause more property flippings, right? <laughs> so, I mean, even if we wanted to make property affordable, we could just release more land, Although the right. thing is with stamp duty, it's a disincentive for people to flip property because of the cost. I agree. And that, I'm actually yeah. between the both of you because I, I had, I've written about this years ago, actually. I agree with you, Veronica, on that sense. But to Doc's mm. point, there is also that, that kind of the extra incentive, right? So you think about who's, who's incentivizing what? Oh, well, the individual buyer is disincentivizing. So, so I'll, I'll give an example. There, there's a lot of government in, um, benefits in property development. Yeah, yeah. So that is, and and fundamentally, yeah. the actual buyer, the ultimate buyer is, is wearing, it's got the basically, mm-hmm. yeah. was it the whole... Uh, countries on the built on the sheep's back or something Australia <laughs> in the in the past and now it's like basically the country's built on on the back of individual buyers of mm. brand new apartments and mm, that's yeah. they're they're carrying the risk. So I'll give you an example. I live in the West, right? Now if I'm a developer, if I'm government policy, I would not go out and first. You're from Sydney, I'm assuming. So mm. you know, I would not go first out and build uh, Oran Park and put two hundred thousand or fifty thousand, whatever number of homes, leave. Mm the middle between that and Sydney empty, right? <laughs> why would, you know, I would, why would I build so far out first and then leave all this empty, right? The reason behind that is, you know, I can build that, move people there, then build infrastructure, and then I can, you know, sell the middle part for more, then, right. more money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, mm. I think the, uh, I think if we were interested in... <laughs> you are in, cynical. Yeah, I'm, I'm very cynical. <laughs> really, really uh, um, <laughs> if I'm being logical, uh, then I would say that, you know, if, uh, the the policy here encouraged because that's a lot of revenue. The policy is designed to attract revenue, not actually to design to create affordability, right? Affordability is actually useful for people. <laughs> yeah, although but the problem is then they give first home buyers incentives, and and those are mostly oh, stamp duty incentives, and then they're encouraged to buy you know your brand new home out at Oran Park. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but 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 that, that all works, you know. So that's all part of the scheme, right? All oh, right. So they're, they're it's, basically it's all, fodder for the machine. It's you're mostly, saying yeah, it's 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 all part of the the spin wheel, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what what was my final thing. Oh, and I absolutely dislike auctions. 
Mm. <laughs> so, so I think as a mechanism, it is one which again bids up prices because you know you put a bunch of people in a room and it seems like <laughs> the so, thing uh, is though market forces will push prices up if there's demand for property and and I can tell you even in a private treaty negotiation, if there is more than one person interested in a property, mm. there'll still be an auction. It just won't be as transparent as a public auction. So that's, that's something to be point. very very um, aware of if you want to buy property in an area where there is scarcity. Yeah, that, that's right. So I'll give you an example, personal example. Um, the so as immigrants, when you first land here, mm. and you actually look for to rent a property. Yeah, and you go to these open houses. Okay, first you'll be scared because mm. you will have. 15, 20 families show up for one place. Yeah, that is freaky. Yeah. That is very yeah, freaky, yes. right? And um, Other immigrants? Have you, I mean, I'm presuming, given your accent, that this is your experience. But so are you finding other people like you or a mix? Well, a lot of diverse, people, a little mix, diverse yeah, mix. Yeah, but, you yeah. know, a lot of people are going to be like, you know, what is going on? Mm. Like, because, you know, uh, I've rented apartments in other places, you yeah. know, in Canada. You just basically <laughs> call up the guy, hey, I want to rent. And they said, how come? When do you want to see that it? that easy. Wow. And then mm. you just sign up and then, mm. you know, you basically get There is enough supply mm. and there's no, this fear psychosis that goes on, right? Mm. So there, there, there is something funny <laughs> that's going on here. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but there is something we, we, unique. <laughs> Interesting. And, and anything that is unique to me is weird. Yeah, <laughs> so, well, How long ago was this, though? How long ago was this? Oh, this, uh, you know, so like it, only because the rental oh, market has been falling. Oh, yeah, yeah. The last so the, so, say, twelve months yeah, or so. Well, yeah, <laughs> no, so this was many, many. This this was in two thousand eight. Okay, yes. Eight. So I, I mean, but the same thing with property buying too, mm. right? I mean, uh, in a lot of places, you basically list your property. People basically call the agent. Property stays listed for like. Months, yeah, months. There's no auction. <laughs> Don't uh, go investing in those areas, people. <laughs> no, 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 but I'm talking about other. Demand, right? No, yeah. I'm talking about countries. I'm talking. This I'm talking yeah. about general policy or uh, as a. Mm. This is more of a policy level question, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are places where you could basically just walk up and buy stuff, but mm. here you can't, right? Yeah, and that's very unique. I think it goes back to your comment about the market being very unique, mm. and and it is. you know, and appreciating the uniqueness. But I think some of those things are. Uh, policy driven as well. It's, yeah, it's just my comment. look, and I do, I do think what you're saying is is there's a lot in that that's very true. My uh, my sister lives in Italy, so I often have these conversations with my brother-in-law <laughs> around the differences, you know, and it took me many, many years to understand that Australia is quite unique in this regard because <laughs> he's saying, well, there is no property market. Prices don't rise. And what do you right, mean by right, that? Right. Well, there must be people looking around to buy a property and say, well, they don't. Basically, somebody will own a property and it's been the family for maybe even centuries <laughs> and decades or whatever. And it's yeah, like right. if they might be enticed to sell and it really comes down to their a, a negotiated deal between two people just because somebody's decided they want to sell rather than having an active property market. That's interesting. It's really different. And so, yeah. yeah. So, so I think that, that's where I think policy comes in. So the mm. largest data for property market goes back to, I think, Amsterdam. Mm. history. If you look at 200 years, the property market rises by 3%. Mm. Um, so there's a question to ask as to why should Sydney be any different mm. from Amsterdam, right? Then the answer probably lies in policy, right? And I think the answer is, is, is really policy because otherwise it should not be anything different. In, in If you think about it, yeah. you know, I mean, Amsterdam is, you know, it's basically... Was it growing in terms of population? Oh, so, 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 that, those, so those, those are policy questions, right? Is yeah. it growing? How fast is it growing? How, how mm. fast is, you know, um, 
uh, land being released. Uh, I mean, they. I mean, you can think you can make an uh, argument for a place like uh, Netherlands that that place is basically sinking in water, mm. right? So you they, could make so, an argument about so, that. So, okay, so, <laughs> so, so probably so, wouldn't well, be buying there either. <laughs> no, well, but but technically, then there is you know there is a scarcity of land there as well. We have no mm. scarcity of land actually, technically, mm. as as a country. It's a large a country. You know, so that's political. This is I, all, I've seen Mad Max. This can definitely yeah. work, guys. Yeah. So, so this is, this is all political. Anyways, uh, that's my viewpoint. That's but, good. That's uh, a good one. Now, Veronica, I, I can't let you go because our listeners will be clamoring if I don't ask you. Uh-huh. You you focus on Sydney, so let's make it a Sydney mm-hmm. question. We can't – and we shouldn't extrapolate. I think what's what I like about your approach is that it's really – again, talking about the difference between shares and property people. Shares people say, well, I like this company or that company. Mm. And then tends to, for a decent subset of, of our group, say, but property is X, right? Mm. So there's a single market. And you guys have said many, many times, Eliza Rowan said the same thing, there is not one property market. There's an average, of course, like yeah. the share market, but there's not one market. There are different pockets, different opportunities. Mm. You talked about Sydney CBD, then there's suburban, there's other cities, there's yep. regional, rural. Based on where you are, what are you seeing in the Sydney CBD-ish, what if you call that kind of 10-kilometre mm. radius, what are you seeing in the market right now? How are prices going? How are buyers and sellers reacting? <laughs> what, what's what's the mood? What, and, and frankly, where are the opportunities or other opportunities? Should you be buying or selling? Give us the quick market summary. Yeah, sure, sell. <laughs> All right. Um, look, there's FOMOs back in, yeah. supply and demand. Fundamentally, that's the one thing that drives property in this country is supply and demand. I mean, yeah. it might yep. be impacted by policy and, you know, the rest yeah, of it, yeah, but at yeah, the end yeah. of the day, it is supply and demand. Right. Um, so there's low demand, uh, sorry, high demand, low supply. That's been well documented. There's also a bit of a change in the way mar- uh, agents are actually marketing properties. So mm-hmm. there's a perception of lower supply than there probably really is. And only because what, what agents are doing now is, you know, they've got sort of a scarcity mindset going on and so mm. they're sort of changing their pitch to potential vendors and going, oh, well, let's do it off-market first. Oh, right. So there is an increasing amount of property that is being that's sold off-market. So there's this – and, you know, I've always said, look, you know, when the market gets hot, the off-markets die off and they normally right. always have in the past. Okay. However, it's these agents sort of changing their sales approach that's that's uh, affecting that. So, Should yes. Tell you, why would you as an agent not want – the maximum possible competitive tension. Oh. Why would you go for an off-market sale? I, look, I don't really. It's basically to get a listing. You, oh, they're okay. pitching their database. They're pitching to say, look, you know. Right. And look, owners do like the idea of going. Oh, that means I don't have yeah. to paint it. I don't yeah. have to style Clean it. Clean up. People come tramping in my exactly house. Exactly right. Every, yeah, and I get, oh, I get one poor mug who's been looking for a bit longer than everybody else, and they'll pay more <laughs> than everyone else. Which, hey, and, if it was true, you'd take, right? I mean, you know, I'd, yeah. Also, I'd absolutely. Someone and sometimes to walk it happens. Pay me over the odds. Yeah, and sometimes it happens. So, so, but you know, I bought one property last year. April, May, I think I bought it, and and I'd seen it the December the previous year for eight hundred thousand right. dollars more than we bought it for. Wow! So you know, there's there's a well often a premium <laughs> on these off market stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so so in what's happening? Yes, there's FOMO. There's this perception, real or otherwise, that mm-hmm. there's no stock. Mm-hmm. You know, the reality is there's never enough quality stock anyway. This is something we deal with day in day out. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. for us, it's just. Groundhog Day, but but um, yep. but for the average buyer who enters the market and they're seeing and they're reading the papers and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff, it does create this sense of urgency and the right. sense of urgency respond it reacts or the re- outcome of that is increased prices, increased competition, and prices are going up. Makes sense. Makes sense. 
Mate, thank you very much for taking the time to come and have a chat with us. It's been very, very educational. I'm sure our listeners have benefited from it. Investors are investors are investors. And as Doc said to me this morning off air, a dollar's a dollar. I don't really care how I make it. If I can uh, <laughs> maximise my dollar, then that's what I'm here for. And hopefully that's what our listeners are here for as well. Veronica, you've been very kind with your time. Uh, you are the principal of Good Deeds Property Buyers. I am. You are the host or co-host of the Elephant in the Room podcast. And you are the author of the upcoming next week book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction, even though you're scared shitless, which I think will probably represent a whole lot of people. <laughs> and I look forward to having a read of that book when it comes out. So have a look in your, I was going to say all good bookstores, maybe all good online well, booksellers. Well, yeah, I mean, you can just go to gooddeeds.com.au or go. getauctionready.com.au. That's pretty simple. Thank you very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Fools, that wraps us up. But before we go, don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, throw us some stars, give us a rating, tell your friends, leave us a review. It's got to be a good thing, surely. They could use a little foolish straight talk as well. And don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691.